I started the week thinking we were going to look into just the opening section of of Luke chapter 11, but then I, I, I saw something going a little further, and I thought, you know, I want to talk about going a little further. Thinking about driving to the coast. In fact, um, I know some people from Vancouver, Pastor Ryan and Jill are going to be going to the coast this next week. And, you know, the coast can be nice. Sometimes it can be not so nice here, but they're going to have some nice sun breaks and beautiful day there. Or it could snow, who knows. But um, the coast can be nice. And so you get in your car and it's going to take, it might take two hours to get there, but it's going to be worth it. You're going to get to the coast. But let's say you're on your way, you're almost there, you stop at Camp 18, and you never quite get to the beach. Wouldn't that be a pity? I mean, Camp 18 is interesting. There's tractors there and stuff, but it's not the coast. Or... Julie and I are going to be taking a trip. After Easter, we get to go to Zimbabwe. We get to go to Zimbabwe and see our daughter and her family, uh, our, 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 our son-in-law, uh, two grandkids there now, not only Jamie, but little Ezra has just been placed with them for adoption. So pray that that finishes, but we get to see them. And looking forward to that. And on the way, going to Zimbabwe, we fly through Rome. Now, wouldn't it be strange... On our trip to Zimbabwe, to get so fascinated by a stopover in Rome that there we stay. And we never get to Zimbabwe. We never get to see the kids. We never get to get hugs from, from James and little Ezra. Wouldn't that be a strange thing? To, to, to begin, but to not go further. We've talked about that in the past, in fact, with the building program. That we're in a building program and God has abundantly provided. God has already provided like 80%. We have enough to, to, to break ground, to do all the site preparation, to get the plans, to, to in fact build and close in and make weather tight and, and heating and air and all that stuff, but not the finishing carpet and cabinets and all the interior finishing that's needed before occupancy. Wouldn't it be silly to be here five or six years from now and have this nice new building all around us that is still wonderful on the outside but unfinished on the inside, that we didn't go further from beginning to finishing. That would be strange. In fact, there's, a, there's another country where, where I visited that the, the, there's a street called Church Folly Lane. And it's called Church Folly Lane because at the end of the street, there is what is known, and it's been, it's been there, I think, for over 100 years. It's called the Unfinished Church. It was a church that began, but didn't finish. They started, but they didn't go further. As we've been talking about knowing and following Jesus. Here in the Gospel of Luke, as a church, we're convinced that we need to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. And as we help others to know him, we'll know him more fully. We'll be following him as we're helping others to know and follow him. And so, this, this, this looking into the Gospels to not only know Jesus, but to take a next step in following him. And as we've gone further into the gospel, we're getting more of that following. More of, first of all, he's revealing himself and who his father is. And then, more and more, to his followers, he's, he's calling them to take another step in following him. We saw that in the need to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. 
We saw that last week in um, we follow sometimes from out front, that he sends us ahead and he's going to be coming, and yet we follow without all the specifics because we don't have Jesus to answer every question. We need to be following by his spirit. And this, this chapter is before us this morning. One of the things that, I, that has bubbled up from the different episodes that are collected here is that we need to follow a little further. There's a place to start, but then there's next steps to take. There's an initial thing that is important in how we know and follow, but don't stop there. It might be easy to stop at Camp 18 and never make it all the way to where he intends us to go in following. So what I want to do, is, I mean, there's, there's, there's six different sections here as I've laid them out. I want, to, I want to unpack the first one a little bit more, maybe touch some high points in the midst. Maybe we'll spend a little bit more time on one of them as we go. We're not going to get all this there out of this chapter, but there's an overall point I want you to get. In one of these areas in particular, you might have your toes stepped on, and that's okay. In one of, these, one of these areas in particular, the Lord might nudge you a little bit, or that might be your wife, I'm not sure, but it's okay, that, that there's an area here that perhaps you need to follow further. And that would be wonderful if that's what the Lord shows us as we go into his word together. Let's begin in, in verse 1. How do we follow in how we pray? The disciples want to follow the Lord and how they pray. So in verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so he said to them, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've heard that somewhere before. In fact, that was content right out of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, that's part of a much longer discourse, a lot of teaching. So th this is teaching that was very early in Jesus' Galilee ministry. And so they've heard this before. He's taught this before. They want to know how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Well, he goes back and he gives them the highlights out of that earlier instruction. This is not rocket science. And he reminds them again of some of the what to pray for. Some of the what, the things you should say when you pray, that's really what they're asking, isn't it? Father, you have access. It is not just, oh God, high and lifted up, that he is our Father, he is near, as well as hallowed be your name, that he is, he is transcendent. He is the great and almighty. He is high and lifted up. So God is imminent or near as our father, and yet God is transcendent and to be worshiped. The, the, the balance between those. He, he, he reminds them to pray for God's coming kingdom, for the bigger picture, the greater, longer purpose that which God is, is, is moving, but also our daily individual specific needs, our daily bread. There's a balance between the two of those. He mentions, forgive us our sins, trespasses, things that we have done that were wrong, 
Even as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Indebted to us because perhaps they withhold. Perhaps somebody did not do for us something they should have done for us. There are ways that we can sin both in what we do against others and in what we fail to do. We talk about sins of commission, things I commit, and sins of omission, things I omit, things I do not do. There's an old liturgy that says, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And Jesus touches on both of those very quickly. There's a lot packed into his instruction on prayer. Don't lead us into temptation. We are not strong enough. You have a dependency and you have a weakness. And this, uh, this temptation, it's a, it's a trying, a testing, a proving that faith is genuine. But he's reminding the disciples probably, I think, to, to not think themselves bigger and stronger than they actually are. Now, all those are important. All those could be unpacked even further. But I'm not going to because Jesus doesn't. He gives them the abbreviated. It's obvious to us that it's abbreviated. In fact, when you read that chapter, if you read it knowing we were going to talk about it today, when you read that, you said, well, wait a minute. He left stuff out. Why did he leave stuff out? And that caused you a little bit of angst. He was just reminding of those things because there is more. It's not merely what to say when you pray. There's something, in fact, about how you pray. What is your attitude toward God? What is your expectation? And he, now he touches on that. He said to them, which of you has a friend? Who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now this could happen because, because especially in the summertime, travel in the afternoon could be very hot and hard and difficult. And so sometimes you would have to rest in the hot afternoon if you found a shady place. And then you would continue the journey once the cool of the evening came. And if it took a little longer than expected, you might arrive late at night. But hospitality required that we when a guest comes, you provide them something, somehow. It's, it's, it's um, very inappropriate to not have some hospitality to share with a guest when they arrive even at an inconvenient hour. Think of Mary and Joseph. Okay, so what you having a friend in this kind of need, certainly you'd go to your neighbor. You had nothing in the house. The kids ate it all at dinner time. I got nothing left. We were going shopping in the morning. I got nothing left to give my guest who has come. And so you go to the neighbor. Can you give me? He said, well, which, which of you having such a need and having a neighbor, would the neighbor respond in this way? Don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot be bothered to give up and give you anything. No, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his boldness, his impudence, his persistence in asking, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you then, the story illustrates prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Is Jesus saying that God is like that friend 
That he wouldn't get up and give it to his friend because he's his friend, but because he's bold to keep asking and he's not going to get any sleep, he might as well get up and give him the bread so we can all get some sleep around here. Is God like that? The more you nag him, the higher the chances that he will answer your prayer. And that God actually needs to be bothered and nagged by you, otherwise he really wouldn't care. No. As the next episode illustrates, God is not like either of these examples. God rather gives to those who ask. To those who see, God opens, he shows, they find Even as he goes into the next example here, I find my place again, in verse um, 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Oh, you want a fish? That'd be nice. Yeah, fish would be good for lunch. Here, have this snake. Or if he asked for an egg, you would give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, good things when they ask, how much more will the heavenly father How much more will the Heavenly Father give, in fact, not merely an egg, not merely a fish, but give the Holy Spirit to give his eternal and kingdom blessing to those who would ask him for it? God will give more than we ask. God is far better than these examples of the neighbor next door or even fathers who know how to give good things to their children. And there's the point. It's not merely about, what should I say when I pray? Okay, I learned how to pray. That's how Christians pray. That's how you're supposed to sound when you pray. That is a step in in spiritual growth. You were not born knowing how to pray. You do have to learn to pray. You have to learn the mechanics of it. But we need to follow further than that. There's something about how we pray. Did you know you can pray with boldness? That your God wants you to pray. He wants you to perceive and respond in your dependence on him and need of him. He delights to hear that. We are told, in fact, in Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly before. Boldly, that's the kind of word that's used here. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Our God wants to give. He's not the reluctant neighbor. Our God is a loving Father. Think in your prayer. We need to go a little further than what should I say when I pray to who am I praying to? Let that change how you pray. Let the reality of who am I approaching, who am I making this ask of, who is it that I can be so bold with that he is my Father who is better than a father. You know, we are impacted by our past. Our perception of God is shaped by earlier events. Even our our idea of what it means for, for, for God to be a heavenly father is impacted by our experience with an earthly father. If your father was was um um, very engaged and involved and helpful and teaching and uh and caring, that bleeds over into your understanding of God without anybody else having to explain that to you. If your father was distant, unavailable, detached, emotionally disconnected, seemingly uncaring, or just not around at all, that's going to roll into your understanding of who God your father is. 
And similarly, in Luke's audience, those that he's writing to, uh, those who have heard the gospel through Paul in the Mediterranean world, those are probably in Luke's orbit. And, and as he's writing to them, they have their own background on what God or gods are like. They have this background of the Greco-Roman gods who were nothing more than all the weaknesses of humanity, but exalted in power and might. So they had all these all these. Um, hang-ups and idiosyncrasies and all this pettiness. And it was nothing for them to, to play tricks on, to try to get the better of, to manipulate one another, and certainly the humans who depended upon them. So you approach the gods somewhat fearfully, never knowing what they would do, because it was not above them at all to use humans for their own entertainment and their own schemes against one another. Your God is not like that. So Jesus is using this very common image of a father to help them to understand what their God is like. Who is it that we have the privilege of praying to? And there's something about going further. There's something about going deeper here. It's not a matter of learn a prayer to pray and then you'll know what to say. And yet it seems to fall to the ground empty. His desire is that we would go further, not only know, how do I pray? What confidence can I come with? And who is my God, my Father, whom I am praying to? Going, following further from how to pray to Jesus, when he prayed, he knew the heart of his Father that he was praying to. And that is what changed his prayer more than knowing what's the right thing to ask. We often, don't we focus a lot on what's the right thing to ask? Is it okay to ask this in prayer? Is that the right thing to pray for? What if we spent more time focusing on who am I praying to? Following further from how to pray to whom we pray to. Coming up next, there's, a, there's an illustration, and it starts really, it's about spiritual bondage and freedom from that bondage. There's the casting out of demons, and there's debate as to how Jesus is doing this and what authority, and I just don't want to get into all of those, because at the end of it all, Jesus makes a particular point that I think is really worth focusing on and really adds into this flow that I, I'm seeing through the chapter. So there's this conversation, but then he, he warns them at the end of all that, you start talking about, well, how are you casting out the demon and by what authority and which power? And there's a little back and forth, and he basically traps them. That's fun in itself. But in verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, what happens then? Is that really the end of it all? Y'all are focusing on the casting out of the demons, he's saying to his audience. But is that really the point at all? Is that what Israel really needs is all of her demons to be cast out? Well, the demons and the Romans, right? If we could get rid of the demons and the Romans, everything would be good. Now, you're not Jewish people living under Rome and Israel, and there's and, and the demons around the landscape that are causing blindness and dumbness and throwing into fires and all these kind of things that you read about in the gospel, perhaps. But you've got your own things. You've got a list. If God would simply do this or that or that, then life would be good. Why does life have to be hard the way it is? If God would just do this or that, and don't we start as needy children with a list like that? That is not surprising. Don't kick yourself about that. 
Don't beat yourself up because I am focused on these things that I wish God would do. Well, it's good that you have that confidence that God cares enough about you that he would perhaps do that. You know, and if I could just win the lottery, everything would be fine, right? Think of all the troubles you'd no longer have if you won the lottery. Well, you have no idea of the kinds of troubles you would now have if you won the lottery, not merely in life, but, but what about the spiritual temptation and distraction that you would now have thinking that you are fully self-sufficient? But he says, you know, just getting rid of the demons and the Romans, whatever else plagues you in your sinful addictions, just getting rid of the sin is not the problem. It's, it's bigger than that. Unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. Finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, cleaned out and ready for occupancy. So it goes and brings seven other spirits. He brings seven other buddies back with him. And they have demon party together in this house of this person's life that had just been cleaned out. Everything seemed good. But what was needed was not merely the removal, the eviction of the demons. Humanity has a bigger need than that. You may not have demon oppression going on, and yet you have a spiritual need. The removal of the demons is step one. Following further is for them as a whole, and then by us listening in, it's more than fixing the initial presenting problem. It's that they need the indwelling spirit. The house shouldn't be left empty to be reoccupied. And you know, there's a very practical aspect to that just in terms of we spend a lot of time trying not to do things, don't we? Don't we spend time trying not to do particular things, what Hebrews describes perhaps as an easily besetting sin? And we can try not to do the easily besetting sin. We can try to keep the demons, if you will, at bay. But what are we giving ourselves to? What are we filling ourselves with? And the answer to the expulsion of the demons is the invitation of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit to come and to live, take up residence instead. That would be the answer to the problem that Jesus poses here. The audience needs to go further from just wanting God to solve particular presenting problems to what their deeper spiritual need is. The next one, a woman hearing this and realizing that, yes, he is the one who can cleanse them. He, he, he is one who's sent from God. And she bursts out in the midst of the crowd. A woman raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And at first we think she's putting attention back on Mary. And we see, we see that happening in religious circles. And that shouldn't be. And Jesus corrects and takes that back away from Mary and puts it somewhere else. And that's not what's going on. The line that she uses is actually a good line. We wouldn't say it quite that way today, but in first century Judaism, a very common way to praise somebody was to say, blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed is your mother. Blessed is your father. To have such a son or daughter. 
That was a way in the culture to esteem or honor somebody was to say that your parents are blessed because you are so great. We would say it similarly today. We would say, your parents must be so proud, right? It's not a completely unusual thing. And, and, and the woman is not saying something wrong. Mary herself in Luke 148 says, People will, all generations will call me blessed. And that's just what the woman is doing. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. She is recognizing that Jesus is special. She is praising. She is worshiping. And isn't that good? Isn't that what we should do? Isn't that of critical importance in the Christian life that we should worship the God who created us, the God who has saved us, the God who has redeemed us, that we would worship him and give him praise? Isn't that important? Yes, it is. And yet it's not all. One of the ways that we worship, as Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 12, is to present our bodies a living sacrifice. That by the mercies of God we yield, we present ourselves a living sacrifice. That this is our reasonable service of worship. So Jesus hears the praise, but he says, but there's more than that. Let's go further than that. One of the weaknesses of the American evangelical church, and I can talk about this one because I live in the middle of it, this is me, right? Is we're easily drawn and emotionally satisfied with worship without obedience. We'll throw in a little confession along with our worship, which is good and essential. But to follow our Lord further is to step into that obedience, even as he described, that obedience that will call for some sacrifice, even as he obeys his Father by sacrificing, giving himself for us. And there is real blessing, not not merely for him, that in his humbling, God has greatly exalted him, Philippians 2 says, and given him a name that is above every name. Yes, he humbles himself and God exalts him. And Scripture says the same thing to us through James and Peter, to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. You see, Jesus would actually share his blessedness with us. That we are children of God, Romans 8 says. That we are, if children, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. He would share his blessedness with us. Blessed are those, not merely who are associated with him and who recognize him and who would esteem him, but blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. Blessed are those who worship by stepping into, by yielding lives in obedience. Following further from worship into obedience. Following further from the miracle we want to the miracle we need. This is not unlike some of what we talked about earlier with the unclean spirit, maybe, maybe recycling. Come about that from another angle before. There's, there's a seeking of a sign in verse 29. The crowds are increasing. They, they, they want to see a sign. He, he says to them, this generation is an evil generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
What's that all about? Well, Matthew unpacks that further. Even as Jonah was three nights in the, in the, in the, in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. On the third day, he will be raised again. So the sign that they will be given, the one sign they will be given that will authenticate, and Peter goes back to it in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. This Jesus who died is the one who was raised from the dead, and there's the sign. That's what David said concerning his descendant, that you will not allow his body to undergo decay. That's the sign. That's the proof positive. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Ark of the Covenant, and a wooden stick. One of the things that was included in the Ark of the Covenant was a stick that was used to prove who had the right to hold the high priesthood. Who will be priest? And there were some other guys that said, hey, we should have the job. We're as good as Aaron. And so God says, okay, line them up, have each of them bring a staff and stick it in the ground, and we'll see. One of those dead sticks that will blossom That'll be the one. Whoever's stick, life comes out of that dead stick, that staff stuck in the ground. Whichever one life comes out of, that'll be the one that I have chosen to be the priest for Israel. And it's Aaron's rod. And Aaron's rod doesn't doesn't just show life and have some buds, but blossoms and it bears fruit. There's life out of death. The image, the badge of the priesthood The badge of the one who really was going to be God's priest for us is the one who held the badge, the proof of life out of death. And that Jesus himself would fully fulfill. He is the one who was raised from the dead. He is the one that fulfills the sign of Jonah. But that's not the sign they were looking for. Give us something now. Give us something to catch our attention. Give us something we can put in the headlines. Give us something that, that, that and in fact, you know, if it could be that whole bread thing multiplied that gave everybody lunch, you know, that would be good. Let's do that. One sign will be given. You know, aren't there, aren't there miracles that we would love to see God do? There is stuff going on in life. There's stuff going on right now that you would love. In fact, uh, there, are, there are many different circumstances in this church in this last week that I've been praying, God, would you intervene? Would you change? Would you work here? And Lord, would you encourage by showing, by letting them see your hand at work on their behalf? I pray that way, boldly, because my Father has invited me to. And yet, uh, the thing that gives me courage to pray that way is one way or another, I know what God has already done. He's already brought life out of death. Nothing is too hard for him. And ultimately, anyone who believes in him, even if I die, and even if I'm on my deathbed and, and, and my prayer to him for my life to be revived, I don't like Hezekiah, get 15 more years, even if I know. I know that to be absent from this weak body is to be present with the Lord. That on that day that somebody hears that Bob has finally died, don't you believe it? Bob will be more alive than ever before. That's the reality. And so we move from praying for a particular miracle that we want to trusting God for the greater miracle that we need. We don't necessarily need to be healed from our sickness. We need life from death. 
We don't need out of this financial jam nearly as much as we need life from death. All of us need that. Some of us already stand in it, have begun to taste in it. Perhaps there's somebody here that as yet doesn't quite know what I mean. How is it that I could have life from death in Jesus? We can. Following further from the miracle that I want, what I want God to do, to trusting him for what he has already done, the miracle that I need. That, that it's not merely about seeing something. It's not merely about seeing light as he goes now into this light illustration, but it's actually, if we receive that light, Jesus comes into the world as the light of the world, the light that's being talked about. God hasn't hidden. He's been on, in open, plain view. And yet not everybody's received him. But to those who do, who receive him into their life, then that light comes within them. And look at verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And Jesus, who comes into the world, according to John 1, as in him was light, and that light was the life of man. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. He comes into the world as light, but not everybody receives him. But to those who receive him, he says, you are the light of the world. He is light, and yet he makes us light when we have received him. There's one more. Before our time is gone, and this one's a little bit bigger, but it's probably more important. To follow further, means to follow from a changed life and changed behavior to a renewed and a cleansed heart. That's what we really need. It's not about what we think we want. It's about what does God say humanity really needs. And this goes back to the point of the dirty bowl and the Cheerios that we talked about earlier. Let's jump in at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went and reclined at the table. Pharisee invites Jesus home for, 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 for dinner, Saturday dinner, Sabbath dinner. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now, kids, let me explain. This is not, you don't have to listen to your mom telling you, um, uh, wash your hands before dinner. You don't have to do that because Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. That's not the point. This is not, you were outside, you got your hands dirty, now wash them before you eat. We don't need those extra minerals, you know, along with the meal. This is, outside people are unclean. You've been around those outside people. You, have, you might have some of their uncleanness on you, and so you don't want to eat before you wash the uncleanness off. It's not about sanitation or hygiene it's about others are unclean and we are the ones who are pure and so the practice is we when we've been outside with the unclean we now rinse that away it's just pouring a little water over the hands rinsing that uncleanness of others away it was a very proud view of oneself and others, and Jesus doesn't join in. He's the only one that's pure and, uh, and unclean, and yet he has no, no patience for, for going along with the Pharisees' game here. So they notice that. I think Jesus purposely doesn't go along with them because he wants to make a point. The Pharisees are astonished, and so the Lord says to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish or the cereal bowl, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, 
Did not he, God, who made the outside, also make the inside? But give as alms devoted to God those things that are within, and behold, everything becomes clean for you. What you need is a cleansed heart. It's not a matter of keeping yourself clean from outside things that will defile you because inside you're not clean. You need to be cleansed on the inside. And as I try to figure out from the kids, how can we be cleansed on the inside? A toothbrush won't reach far enough. We can't just swallow a wash rag. That's not going to work. So how can I be clean on the inside? Woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb. You neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. And woe to you, it's a funeral word. Death to you. You're in death. You love the best seat in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What's that all about? When you walk over a grave because you didn't know it was there, you make yourself unclean because you walked over a grave. That's according to their rules, not Jesus's. And they're like that. Other people who try to follow their standards of religious righteousness actually make themselves unclean because, first of all, they cannot keep all the rules that they put upon themselves. They never measure up. We can never measure up to our own standards. And not only that, any rule you put up, in fact, is going to, going to um, provoke some rebellion in you against it. And not only that, the outward behavior that you're trying to conform still doesn't change the inward pride by which you think you can measure up. And the inward greed and selfishness and jealousy that Jesus describes here. They can change the outward behavior, but they can't change the inside. And one of the lawyers asked him, one of those scribes who knows the law really good, one of those who's really good at all the things we should and shouldn't do, and saying these things, you insult us too. And he says, good. Woe to you, lawyers or scribes, for you load up people with burdens hard to bear. You tell other people all the things that they should do and not do, and yet you don't lift a finger to lighten their burden. You can't do anything to help them. Run, run, and do the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. God in the gospel of Jesus, of forgiveness and new life in him, he gives us not only the invitation to live in a whole new way, but by his indwelling spirit now in the house, by his indwelling spirit, he gives us the ability to do it. And that's why to live, to follow him according to the leading of the spirit is far better than to try to keep measuring up whether it's for God's acceptance or in trying to be a good Christian by keeping some list of rules. Now, when your children are little, they start by keeping rules, don't they? And you tell them what they should do. You tell them what they shouldn't do. And there's consequences if they don't do and not do those things on your list. And you need to start that way with children. 
But isn't there a time somewhere along the way when you move from outward controls and requirements to an inward desire of them to do the right thing? And do you not love it when internally they want to do the thing that would please you as a parent? And we don't have that in us when it comes to God, except God gives us his life and his spirit and puts it in us. And there's where the obedience comes from. I don't want to stand up here this morning and talk about earlier praise versus going further into obedience. And let's try to push that a little bit harder. If you are born again, there is something in you that wants to follow him. And so what the passage this morning is telling us is simply this. Take another step. Take it a little further. Take it a little deeper in your walk with him, in your following. Be willing to be stretched. Be willing to be called into sacrifice. Be willing to step forward in something that's uncomfortable or in giving of yourself in a way that you'd rather just keep that back. Maybe in reserves, maybe for some security, not putting yourself at risk. But go ahead, follow a little further because your good God your good father can be trusted. You can trust yourself completely in his hands and in his care and in his love. Not out of a, ma- out of a matter of pharisaical or, or scribes, legalistic obedience. Not on the basis of anybody who's keeping a list that you're trying to measure up to. Even if it's yourself. Because God in Jesus has given us life. He has loved us. Now, this is not a message. This this idea that God has done for us, but we are not able to do for ourselves, that Jesus dies in our place for our guilt, for our sin. This is not a message that the Pharisees, the scribes, the rule keepers could accept. Look at verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things. Tell us about this. Talk to us about this. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Why are they asking him all these questions? Why are they trying to push him to talk about all kinds of topics? Because they want to catch him in something. If we keep him talking, sooner or later we'll get our sound bite that we can use against him. People play that game with you today. They'll try to get your opinion on all kinds of things. You know what? Most of your opinions don't matter. Nobody really cares. Your opinions about politics are probably not going to change the person who's on the other side of the fence. We are so polarized, but that's not the point. So you change them, so what? What difference is that going to make? You change. God uses you to change their heart concerning Jesus as Savior, and eternity has changed. That's where I want to invest my time. Oh, they'll get sidetracked, and they'll look for you to give them another reason not to listen to you, and I urge you, don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. Let them wrestle with what you think about Jesus. Let's make that the issue. And that's, that, that's where our life is. These Pharisees can't buy that, but Jesus says, blessed are those who as children need God, our loving Father. Blessed are those whom he sets free from spiritual darkness, but not only, but fills with his marvelous light, who who he indwells and enables by the power of an indwelling spirit, according to his new covenant. I will forgive your sins and your iniquities, I will forgive, and I will place my spirit within you. That's God's promise for us. Blessed are those who hear his word and follow in it, obey it from the heart, 
by a life made clean and new. Blessed are those who trust in and follow Jesus who died for our guilt and is risen to give us his new life. That's what we remember in this table that we're going to turn to now. This table, Jesus gave it as a reminder of his new covenant. That by faith, those who believe in him, those who believe God concerning his son, that his death is in our place for our guilt. And that we have been given then new life in Jesus. Because our guilt is forgiven and removed, then the spirit is free to come Not only the demons are gone, the guilt is gone. The house is open and the spirit moves in. That's the difference. That's what God has done. And if that is your confidence, then we invite you to join us at this table. As those who are serving come forward and uh, as the worship team comes, we're going to sing a song together. And if this is your confidence that Jesus took my place, Jesus took away my guilt in his death, so that he could also give me his life. We invite you to join us at this table as these elements are passed to you and then you pass them along to others. And once everybody's been served, we'll partake of them together.